You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. We may feel more connected by our cell phones and computers, but in reality, we are more divided than ever before. In the mid-sized city where I live, OxyContin continued to be viewed as a rural problem into the early 2010s, a problem in the coal fields some four hours to the west. While the Roanoke Times covered the 2007 sentencing hearing of Purdue Pharma executives, it rarely mentioned OxyContin after that. We in Roanoke had heard opioid abuse was seeping into distressed factory towns like those in Henry County, but very rarely did our newspaper report on it. We were safe in our ignorance, or so we thought, content to stereotype drug addiction as the affliction of jobless hillbillies, a small group of inner-city blacks, and a few misguided suburban kids. But another invisible hand was upon us. Heinrich Dresser's drug moved seamlessly across city and county lines with zero regard for politics, race, neighborhood, or class. Beth Macy is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Factory Man. Her work has appeared in national magazines and newspapers, and in the Roanoke Times, her reporting has won more than a dozen national awards, including a Neiman Fellowship for Journalism at Harvard and a Lucas Prize. Her books include True Vine, Two Brothers, A Kidnapping, and A Mother's Quest, A True Story of the Jim Crow South. Her new book is Dope Sick, Dealers, Doctors, and the Drug Company That Addicted America. Thank you for joining me, Beth. Thanks for having me back, Rick. At the beginning of this book, you tell us that opioid abuse has killed 300,000 people in the past 15 years, and we expect that many more in the next five years. This is a kind of mind-boggling number, and just to put it in perspective uh, as to how much effort our nation has put into working on this, that is the equivalent of a 9-11 event, like about at, at a clip of every month or month and a half in the past 15 years, and I can't even think of how many in the next five years. One 9-11, we're still working on that one, but we barely lifted a finger in contrast on the opiate abuse. Exactly. I I agree with that. Too often, we use moralism to look at this issue instead of science as a prism. So we see these folks as criminals, moral failures, and we we either don't look at them or we look at them askance, and um, we don't see them as one of us until... In fact, it touches our own family. I think that idea of moralism is really important to understand this problem and your take on this book because one of the you have a wonderful, beautiful set of human characters, but one of the characters that's most important to this book is Heinrich Dressler's molecule. Yeah. <laughs> and what that that is the the basic heroin component that was invented by Heinrich Dressler for bear back a hundred years ago and made its way out across our nation doing essentially the same thing about a hundred years ago. Also 
thought to be or said by the marketers to be non-addictive. Yeah, right? I, they were giving it to babies, which is kind of mind-boggling. And, and I think you do a great job of portraying this as an epidemic, as an illness. So talk about that, the difference between, because I think in America we tend to look at, if somebody gets sick, we have a very moralistic view of any kind of illness. We say, well, they just weren't taking care of themselves. And I think we have, a, uh, we look us down on anybody who becomes sick. And it's so, this we don't even look at even as a sickness. It's just a bad, bad morals. Bad character, yeah. And, and I've heard it said from people who work in hospitals who have relatives with addiction, they'll say, well, somebody can eat themselves into obesity and diabetes and we take care of their problems and other sort of, you know, behaviors that, that are perhaps addictive that lead to uh, chronic illnesses. But with this, we just turn the other way, you know? And um, the thing I keep coming back to is this didn't have to happen. For a hundred years after Mr. Dresser or Dr. Dresser invents uh, diacetylmorphine in 1898 for bear, you know, then there's this huge morphine epidemic or heroin epidemic that comes out of that. And it's, they've said that it's going to cure morphinism, which we had a huge morphine epidemic after the Civil War because doctor, it was also a doctor caused or iatrogenic epidemic wave. And so for a hundred years after we cracked down on that, you know, outlawing heroin, I think in 1924, um, for a hundred years we knew that these drugs were only to be used in cases of uh, extreme pain, post-surgery, cancer, end of life. And then what happened in the mid-90s is OxyContin came along um, and the company that made it pushed the narrative that opioids were now safe, not just for post-surgery and cancer and end of life, but for moderate back pain. And who doesn't have a little moderate back pain? And TMJ, you know, the the jaw-clenching temporomandibular joint disorder, and just kind of all manner of things, and went out and sold this notion to doctors. You know, they weren't allowed to sell it directly to, to patients or consumers, but knowing that, that in general Americans trust their doctors, and they went to the doctors, and they told them that the drug was safe when it wasn't. Now, one of the things you mentioned in this book, and this has long bothered me, <laughs> so and so I'm glad they have a chance to talk with about it. Somebody is the a decision made by um, the FDA was it who who decided that it would be okay for manufacturers of pharmaceutical prescription pharmaceuticals to advertise on the television to Americans, and so that just really enabled uh, this kind of cycle of push-me-pull-you kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, a pill-for-every-ill culture, if you will. <laughs> yeah. And while they weren't allowed to do opioids, to, to advertise opioids on television, they were still advertising everything else, right? And, and that uh, went into kind of the consumers get to decide, you know. I saw this drug advertised, Doc, uh, and that's going to cure my whatever. And so p patients actually started asking for that. And at the same time, you had the pharmaceutical companies uh, with pain foundation groups that they were funding, and you know they gave a they threw a lot of money at the Joint Commission to um, put pain on a par with you know it was the fifth vital sign, and all these. Um, 
all these, I think, greed-based efforts to say pain is poorly treated, uh, uh, you know, epidemic of untreated pain. And that happened all at the same time. And then when you take that marketing um, zealousness and you lay that on top of these distressed communities where the jobs were going away and people started suddenly seeing Oxycontin, not, not just as something they were addicted to, but also as a way they could take half, sell half, and pay their other bills. So it really was like a match going off. You know, it's just the tinder and um, just the perfect storm, uh, particularly in these distressed communities, which are still suffering more than uh, other places in America, I would argue, and they have fewer resources to help get them out of it. You know, one of the things that I, I thought was so beautiful about this book was, and I it, I saw this play out in Truvine too, was your way of weaving stories together, because early on, one of the one of the mothers says that all she wants to understand is the story, uh, why why this happened to her son. And I think that your method of weaving stories together is so powerful. And in contrast, too, with um, reporting, which you're a newspaper reporter as well, and you had, did some reporting on this. So talk about the power of putting this into a book and into a big narrative as like a quilt of stories um, yeah. as opposed to just reading it here and there and how you think that helps the audience really understand that immerse in this I, what's going on here well I always think in, if you're writing about any issue I never go to the top I never go to the CEO I never go to the mayor I always go with the people on the ground and I and I let those people like so who is suffering most from this issue it's it's families of addicted people and addicted people themselves so I went to those people first and I started gathering the stories and I said well what do I have what are my assets to tell this story and I've been a reporter in Virginia for 30 years so I have a lot of contacts and also Virginia happens to be the place where Purdue Pharma pled guilty uh, to criminal misbranding in 2007 so I had that case I could write about Oxycontin breaking out four hours west in the coal fields in central Appalachia that's a story my paper covered I didn't. Um, and then I had heard the story about this thrice convicted drug dealer landing in this small, non-distressed, kind of once idyllic farm town up the Shenandoah Valley and proceeding to turn a handful of known heroin users into hundreds overnight as the cops told the story. And I thought, here I have these, um, if I'm writing about the heroes or the people fighting back, I have these three sort of geographic buckets. And if I can make a story out of them, um, I can explain history, how we got here. I can explain how it went from rural areas where people started locking their doors and crime that they'd never had to cities and suburbs, you know, like where I live, and how it really took root in upper middle class places where you would never expect it. And then, and the third story, which was just this compelling drug dealer story and the people who put him away, I had to figure out how that story went into it. So it was a real story problem, if you will, about story. You know, uh, one of the things that really struck me about this book was that when you you didn't just 
report on these people. You helped them. You became part of their lives. And I thought it was really powerful when you were talking about, like, taking people to the clinic and picking them up and watching their kids. Talk about getting involved on that level. That kind of, that's an emotional wallop that's kind of hard to deal with, isn't it? It was, and I, I just took it case by case. You know, I got very close to one young woman. Well, m- m- more than her, I got close to her mother. I spent a lot more time with her mother than I did with her. Her name is Tess Henry. And... um you know, there were moments I just wanted to stay in touch with her when I first met her. I wasn't sure if I was going to use her story in the book. And I said, I, it, she said, I want you to write about my story because I want people to see how hard it is for me to get continued access to treatment. And I think that's something people need to understand better. And she was, you know, clean when I met her. She was, she was not using. And, you know, if statistics... Uh, I knew the statistics weren't good for her, that she was probably going to relapse, and I knew this might happen, but I didn't quite expect what would happen the way it did. And so at the beginning, I started out just driving her to NA meetings because that was a condition of her medication-assisted treatment. With her permission, I would record her. I would drive her because she didn't have her license, and I would put my iPhone on record in the cup holder of the car with her permission, and we would talk, and that would be our way just like a weekly check-in. I'll take you to the meeting on Sunday or Saturday. And and all I asked at the beginning was, I just asked that you're honest with me and, and I'll be transparent with you. Because at the beginning, I wasn't even sure if the story was going to work into the book. And then, of course, it became clear that as she just spiraled down and down and down and down into depths so low that I never imagined, you know, the ultimate low, um... I, I mean, I was just shocked. I was, what do you do when the main person you're following for two years is brutally murdered and ends up dead in a dumpster? Like, there's no, like, journalistic guidebook for that, right? And so, I mean, I was grieving. I was, didn't know what to do. I said, what do, I, what do you do when this mother calls you and tells you? Her daughter has been brutally murdered because of the lifestyle she was living, and um, and I made her soup, and I drove it up to her house on the top of a mountain, and it was just, what would I do for any friend? And I put my notebook away, you know, and but there were there were several moments where I don't. I don't think I crossed huge ethical boundaries. There was one time when Tess asked me to pick her up at a drug house, and I didn't do that. Mm. I talked to my husband about it, and he said, that's not safe. And then so I passed on what was happening to her mother and to this recovery coach that she was working with at the time and sort of pawned it off, if you will. But I just felt that was too much to ask of uh I just didn't want to be in danger. And I grew up in a house with alcoholism where it sort of dominated. And it, it brought back sort of those scary feelings, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, I just knew that was something I didn't want to get involved in. You know, uh, you start this book, too, with uh, Ronnie, uh, who is this man who's the center of this amazing explosion of drugs. So so talk about that because I think you do a good job of bringing him up at the beginning and then at the end you, you sit down with him and, and talk to him. And it's mm-hmm. just a really powerful uh, piece. 
Thank you. That originally was chapter 13, and my editor said, I want chapter 13 to be the prologue. So the first prologue I wrote, that's just on the floor somewhere. <laughs> Maybe a few little sentences got brought, brought back, but I was like, how the heck? And I called my friend, Andrea Pitzer, who's this narrative writing genius, and she said, write about going to visit him in the prison and end with a prologue but don't tell how it happens until later in the story when it naturally occurs. But you want to leave the reader with the cinematic moment, right? Mm. So it took, I didn't, took months just to get approval. Uh, the publisher had to write a letter to go interview somebody in prison. And I actually emailed Sam Canones, who wrote that great book, Dreamland, because he had done a lot of work in prisons. I said, I didn't even know how do you get an interview in prison. And, you know, he said, basically, you had to write. And I looked it up. And he said, you can't take any. Uh, no, you can take a notebook. You can't take any recording devices. And so that was, so I was prepared. I had like three notebooks and five pens and a bunch of questions laid out. And the person minding me said, you have two hours. Well, then she let me stay for six hours. And by the end of the day, like I practically had to ice my hand, you know, and I mean, I was, my hand was killing me. And I had only gotten up once to take a bathroom break for like 45 seconds and ran right back. Um, and that was really interesting. I had never done a jailhouse or a prison interview. But, and of course, as he got comfortable with me, the story was so much more complex than I had been led to believe, you know, even though I'd interviewed a lot of the prosecutors and the people who had spent time surveilling his ring and other dealers, users in the ring I had interviewed and his some of his family members um you know it's interesting you were just making with your hands the form of a pyramid and one of the things I thought about as as I read about this the way these things work is that drug abuse and and drug dealing is really is a pyramid scheme in the purest form it's just that the people you can keep adding people to the bottom almost endlessly as long until they all they're all dead exactly and in fact people are sort of incentivized to recruit new users. A lot of people end up dealing. Sure, because they can take their drug somewhere where it's even harder to get and sell it at twice the price. Yeah, and and have their own supply then, you know. No. Uh, but I, the reason I did the pyramid is literally when I learned about Ronnie Jones, I was interviewing a prosecutor, and he said, let me tell you about this case we just finished. 84 people in federal and state court, and at the top of this Literally, it was a pyramid with all these names. At the top was Ronnie Jones. At the bottom were users. Some of them were X'd out because they had overdosed and died. And at the very top, it said F-U-B-I. I think I talked about this yeah. in the book. And I was like, what's that stand for, Don? He didn't want to tell me. And so I let it go. And then I came out. I was like, Don, what's that stand for? And he goes, I'm not going to tell you. And then so then I just decided to guess it. So I said, fuck you, bitches. And you could tell he's just like, that's not it. So then he told me this story, but he told me off the record. And the story was he was interviewing a little mid to low level dealer, and they were trying to get them to squeal on the person above them in this ring. And he said, if you, and he was already in jail for other charges. And he said to him, Keith Marshall, if you don't tell me who you're getting your drugs from, I'm going to come back and bring even more charges. And Keith said, fuck you, bring it. And I was, the hair stood up on the back of my neck, you know, like, 
Oh my God. So, but then I have this great story, but I don't have it on the record. So then I found Keith Marshall, who was in a prison in North Carolina, and he told me the story himself, and it was exactly as Don had told it. And so I was able to get it, and it made perhaps a little cheekily, but I got it. <laughs> you know, um, you were talking earlier about uh, medication assisted treatment. Mm -hmm. And this is a really key and important part in your book because. In our society, it's becoming worse now. Um, where we have this constant mantra of abstinence, ab abstinence from sex, abstinence from this, and ab abstinence from drugs, and that has been really been proven not to work. Not for opioid use disorder. No. Yeah, about so, eight percent get better with abstinence uh -huh. versus sixty percent or more on uh, stable doses of of MAT, which is methadone or buprenorphine mainly, and along with social support and counseling. Um, it's just so much protective. It's like, um, and I had a researcher correct me recently. She said, don't call it MAT, call it medicine. It's just like a diabetic taking insulin. It prevents them, um, it protects them. Uh, it is a weak opioid itself, uh, but it has a ceiling effect and it reduces cravings. So, and also if you do happen to do heroin, you, you won't have an overdose because of the blocker that's in it. And so it's protective in so many ways, but there is, as you say, a huge stigma against it, uh, partially because the whole field of drug addiction kind of grew up as a stepchild from the regular healthcare system, but also through uh, AA and NA principles, which were abstinence only. And as I'm told, not meant to be, but that's how it was interpreted because that's what worked best for alcoholism. But people who are struggling with opioid use disorder, so many people, they just can't fight those cravings without the medicine. Well, it seems to me, too, that you write a bit about the the rehab industry, which is tremendously profitable and also that the abstinence only version of this it in order to to run that bit as a business that because you're not using the medicine that takes out a lot of the regulations a lot of the cost and those that rehab is and is expensive yeah. they want cash up front they or they want insurance that's as good as cash up front and one of the side chain effects of this is the way it bankrupts people's families because you send them to rehab once twice three five times every time it's what three to twenty thousand dollars a shot yeah one, that one couple i wrote about that had two heroin addicted children had spent three hundred thousand dollars on various abstinence only rehabs and both of their children are, are doing well now but who has $300,000? I mean, they like six months of sober living after that, and then another relapse and back starting it all over again. And bless their hearts, and I'm really glad those kids are doing better now. But I've seen other families you know, remortgage their house, uh, blow through their 401ks, and the, the, the stories do not end as, as well. Um, there's most rehabs don't allow medication assisted treatment and when you ask why they'll say oh we, we don't have we, it would have to call we'd have to it would cost a lot more if we had to have nurses on staff and doctors on staff and this kind of stuff um people in this book die 
while they are trying to get to an abstinence-only rehab center because they won't take them if they're on any medication at all. I saw that over and over. People dying, trying to get to rehab, and they can't even get there because they relapse before they can get there. And there's so many Byzantine treatment rules. And uh, as, as Tessa's mom said, it's closed doors, closed doors, closed doors everywhere they turned. You know, uh, for you, this must have been interesting just because you were so close to the center where it broke out and that's the absolute inverse of the way these things usually work out isn't it uh with drug yeah. uh drug epidemics yeah usually start out in the inner cities and then gradually you know in the case of crack cocaine make their way out into the hinterlands but this one started exactly in the opposite way grabbing a toehold and isolated spots like Appalachia and Machias, Maine, places where there were high instances of workplace injuries. And the reps targeted those areas because there were already competing opioids being described, prescribed. And with, armed with the data of which doctor was prescribing uh, the most opioids in town, these reps would call on these docs and they would do their pitch about often bringing gifts, swag, if you will, and doing their pitch about this drug's safer than these competing opioids that you're prescribing. And the swag was incredible, and, and the the kind of the the bribes essentially that they laid onto the doctors and how much they pushed that. That was a, like a huge sales push, wasn't it? Huge thing. And a friend of mine first broke that down for me. We were at a music festival, and he heard I was working on this book. And he's a pharma rep uh, for not an opioid. It never has done opioids, but he's been a rep for different drugs for a long time. And he said back in the 90s when Purdue was first getting going with this, it was like the Wild West of pharmaceutical swag. And and he told me a lot of those initial stories. And they weren't Purdue-based, but there was one, but they were all doing it. He said, "We, I did it too. You would, you would find out if a doctor likes cigars, you would take the very best Cuban cigars. And he said he was waiting to see a doctor once in Withville. And she had put up a sign-up sheet for her 12-year-old's upcoming birthday to take her 12-year-old and her friends to Carowinds, the amusement park, for reps to pay for that, her kids to go to amusement park for her birthday. And that wasn't, and one did. It wasn't a Purdue rep, but it was another one. And they would have these book events. You could go to a bookstore. And the whole thing was like, we're going to give you this little gift in exchange for you hearing our spiel about our drugs. And then all the studies show that they did actually prescribe those drugs at a higher rate once they had heard the spiel and been given the gift. I mean, that it isn't just our hunch. Like, that actually happened. Well, too, I mean, we've been hearing recently more and more about the numbers of sheer insane numbers of pills that were sent to a town of, of some thousand getting millions uh, uh, of opioid pills it's way more pills than even were people in the town yeah i mean it's it, it, when that data just came out with the washington post and right. the charleston uh west virginia paper sued to get it and people were shocked at it and they had never seen that number 76 billion pills between i think it was 06 and 2012 unleashed on america enough for every man woman and child to have 
I'm going to get the number wrong. I don't have it right off the top of my head, but it was just an astonishing amount. Didn't surprise me. It just seemed right on target with everything I had read and heard. But um, I guess the things about, you know, the DEA kind of not falling asleep on the job there and the diversion uh, department in the DEA was kind of considered a backwater. They weren't given the resources they needed. And then along comes this new law. Obama signed it into law and it sounded good. It sounded like it was going to help pain patients get their pills, but effectively what it did and what all the lobbyists knew that were pumping money into these campaigns was that it was going to kneecap the DEA from suspending suspicious orders and now you're starting to see pieces of that story come out which is good you know the stories you tell in this book uh, of the the people who fall victim to this are really sad and powerful stories and i'd like you to talk about architecting the small stories and the bigger stories i was talking before about a quilt and i was thinking as i was thinking about this book for some reason i a flashback to when I was a kid and my grandmother made a quilt and, and every square was like a little story from oh, the Bible. How cool. <laughs> and, and so I, I thought, you know, boy, that's kind of like the what, what Beth is doing, just quilting oh. all these different stories and to you. tell the big story. Thank you. I tried to pick stories that, well, first I just go with what moves me, right? Mm-hmm. What makes me feel this? And I always learn better from stories than I do reading data, you know? Uh, like, uh, I, I have to know the data and I have to put it in there, but I want you to get caught up in the story. So if I get caught up in the story, I feel that I can convey that to the reader as well. So it, there were so many stories. I mean, so many stories that didn't even make it into the book. I just had to go with the ones that moved me the most. And so that was, of course, Tess's story, and then the story of the people like the parents who lost their, the first parents who lost their children to Oxycontin overdose, relatives against Purdue Pharma, you know, this ragtag group of grieving parents all over the country coming together through a simple message board called oxykills.com, started by an IT guy in Philly, just salt-of-the-earth guy, Ed Bish, back before the internet really existed the way it does now on a message board right and that's how they learned that they weren't the only ones because this stuff wasn't being reported in the early years uh you know here and there it was but he said the first time he heard the word oxycontin his son was dead from it i mean that's a story that grabs you right and then just the fact that they fought back. They protested. They went to the FDA. Dr. Van Z, the first doctor. Van Z, exactly. That's oh, what, he, what a great guy he is. What a great guy. And, you know, it took me about six months to get him on the phone. He's so busy. He, he's 71 now. He might be 72. He's in his early 70s. Uh, he works at least 60 hours a week. His caseload. He works at a sliding scale clinic in the poorest place I've ever seen. I mean, literally, when he drove me around to these former coal camps, you people living in houses that you didn't think anybody would live there, and they were living there. And I said, this remind, this is worse than places I saw in Haiti after the earthquake. That's what it reminded me of. And he was kind of like stunned by that. He, he loves these people. But just, just 
such a good person. And here he is putting himself in the early years trying to like, we've got to get this company. Certainly if I show him with all sincerity, people are dying. Uh, I'm going to introduce him to these family members and they'll see this drug is not safe. Maybe they'll take it off the market and reformulate it until it can be abuse resistant. That's what he wanted them to do. And he wrote to him, he writes this pleading letter in 2000, he says, my fear is that these distressed rural areas are sentinel areas the way San Francisco and New York were in the early years of HIV. And they just cast him off as a kook. I mean, the guy's like Mother Teresa. He really is. All those folks. And I was so moved by their work, the fact that they've been fighting in the trenches since the late 90s. Here we are, two decades later. They're still dealing with the aftermath of this crisis every day. That's why he's working so many hours, because he has so many patients with substance use disorder. You know, I think it's really important for everybody who <clears throat> hears about this and on the many, many people who come in contact with it to understand that this is a disease, that the molecule, Dressler's molecule, changes the brain. And one of the most perilous aspects of this disease is the combination of shame that attends to it, but also its uh, un hidden nature. Because by the time you notice that somebody has, quote, the infection, they're already so addicted that, you know, they're almost beyond hope. And that's the, the peril. It's, it's like if you, um, if you could catch Ebola, say, and first you see you get a couple sniffles, and then it sits in you for six months while you walk around infecting everybody else, and then six months later, bang, you're dead. That's kind of what happens with, with uh, this form of addiction to these kind of opioids. Yeah, you're exactly right. It hijacks the reward center. And then I was just interviewing Tessa's dad. I have a podcast coming out, actually, where it's an audio documentary that's a deeper dive into her story and her mother's search for clues and closure about what her happened to, da to her daughter. It's coming out in October. Um, it's going to be an audible original. But I was re-interviewing her dad for it. He said, by the time you learn about it, you as a parent, it's often too late. And when Tess was going through this, the only things they could, the only kind of treatment they could access were exactly the wrong kinds of treatment. But that's what was available to her at the time. The doctors, there were waiting lists for the doctors to prescribe the buprenorphine, and there are waiting lists because not enough doctors are willing to deal with this, and also because the DEA makes them get a special waiver, and a lot of doctors don't want to do that. I think a lot of it is stigma. They don't want, quote, addicts in their waiting room. Well, guess what? You have, quote, addicts in your waiting room. And I said this to a group of doctors before the book came out. It was shortly after Tess's death, and I was holding my necklace here that her mother gave me. I have a picture of her in it. And I was shaking, and I said, I feel like any of y'all in this room who ever took a free item from a pharmaceutical company should feel morally compelled to become wavered to prescribe buprenorphine. You didn't cause this per se, but you were certainly part of the chain. And if you take this oath to do no harm, you certainly have to... You can't just turn people away who are sick and they're really sick. And back to your point about is this a disease or not, everybody says it's a disease, but 
Most ERs in America, if you show up in an ER with an overdose, they'll Narcan you and send you straight back out into the streets. That's starting to change in a few places, including in Tessa's hometown, which I'm really proud about. She would be really proud about. Um, but think if you were if you were having a heart attack, they would send you up to the fifth floor to cardiac intensive care. They would they would take care of you. And I think that 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 aspect of this book is is what really got to me was was the the perception of this. I guess what it reminds me of the the default reaction is I think along the lines of well. Drugs don't kill people. People kill people, or people kill themselves. And that's an argument we've heard in other arenas. And uh, it's mildly effective there, but becoming less so. And one would hope that with the exposure and a sense, I think it's important to read the whole book. And it's easy because it's compelling and it's kind of a a terrorizing thriller about like an outbreak. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I wanted it to be like the book you could give your neighbor and they would understand uh, how we got here, what we still have to do to get out of it, and also that these are just human beings worthy of medical care. They're not moral failures. And I wanted to connect those stories because without Purdue and without this whole notion of pain as a fifth vital sign, we wouldn't be in this crisis now. I mean... Did they make people shoot up heroin? No, but they flipped the narrative and that got so many people addicted to opioids and the fear of them withdrawal, what every user calls dope sick, fear of dope sickness is what propelled them. And then when the pills got hard to get, of course, you and I may have not known that Oxycontin and heroin are chemical cousins, but El Chapo knew it, right? So the the dealers start bringing heroin in and so it is, it is um, it's a story that was going on sort of at this base level that we didn't see it until, like, addiction itself, almost too late, right? It's going to take a lot of work to get us out of this. And I think, too, that um, I like the way that you describe but never prescribe, and that is, must be tough for you as a writer because it it seems to me that sometimes you might when you see this you might well look we need to do this and this and this and this and this and this this. we need to get these people off their butts and make laws we need to get you know this stuff rehab needs to be adequately priced so that the middle class and the lower the people who need it can access it so talk about like trying to keep your eye on the prize of just telling the story yeah, and I did do that. Uh, my editor and I talked about, like, should we have a page at the end that's, like, 10 things you could do or something mm-hmm. like that? She said, that's not the kind of book you write. You you learn from story in your book. Um, but as I've been going out talking all over America, and usually when I go out talking, I'll hear stories, and then I'll end up following up on those stories and doing more reporting. So in the past year, since the hardback came out, I've been reporting on solutions now and as I've learned like kind of what works and seen really innovative things in different parts of the country that I'm going to talk about here tonight where I'm speaking uh, at the bookstore um, I have become 
more of an activist. So well, I, tell us about some of these solutions that sound better than abstinence rehab. <laughs> right. So I, I've got a piece coming out in the Atlantic in December that I'm not supposed to talk a lot about, but I'll just tell you it's about this unlikely treatment innovator who's figured out how to crack the code in rural America on offering addiction treatment. And she did it almost single-handedly by putting a drug treatment center inside of a courthouse and making the law enforcement people uh, interface with the healthcare providers. And when somebody relapsed, it was the healthcare providers that got to decide whether they went back to jail or not and having great success. Um, I was just in Burlington, Vermont last week giving a talk there. They've got a police chief. I mean, this is a power of one kind of story. A police chief who said, this is not acceptable. He realized that 34 overdose deaths in 2017, every single one of those people had come in contact with his police force. And so they started offering services and getting these disparate silos together to talk about that and they meet every two weeks and they talk about everybody they've seen and they're screening everybody they come into contact with and the police there actually drive them to treatment and the next year their overdose deaths went down 50 percent in a state where statewide they still went up 20 percent but in Burlington Vermont they went down 50 percent so we have models where this is working these certain innovations are working. We're just not prescribing them uh, to the scale to match the scale of the epidemic. And that's, you, that's frustrating. And I, I get kind of shrill about it now because I'm just like, huh, more overdose deaths. And we know how to fix this. We know how. We know that the medication works. We know that syringe exchange and recovery uh, programs work. Uh, you know, needle exchanges, you might call them here that that helps be a conduit for people, especially when they're living on the streets, to get people into treatment, to keep them from spreading disease. We know that um, in Burlington, they no longer arrest people just for possession or even low-level dealing. They take them into treatment instead. Well, this sounds like we're making some advances slowly, and it's interesting that the, uh, the advance you described comes from pretty close to what was the inception point of the whole thing in the beginning. It took us a long time to figure that out, eh? Right, right. Which, what do you mean Vermont, exactly? Vermont, well, oh. rural Vermont. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And maybe they've just seen it longer. Actually, the guy who, who really championed it, he was a New York City police officer. And you know when New York, like, really turned their crime rate down? Mm -hmm. They did a program called Comstat where they were real-time data and you know, deploying police officers. And I should stop talking about it because I don't really know enough to describe it. But I know he brought that that real clarity on we need to know where these people are so we know how to help them and where to help them. And, um, and then just went after it. The new book by Beth Macy is Dope Sick. Thank you for joining me, Beth. Thank you so much for having me back, Rick.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.